Well, this morning, I conclude uh, the message I began last Sunday, entitled, Climbing Out of the Pit of Depression. Uh, So I know there were some of you here that were not here last Sunday, so let me begin with the review. So we'll just, I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes, and we'll just start right at the beginning and uh, run through uh, all that we covered last Sunday and then uh, conclude the rest of uh, uh, the message today. Uh, First, look at the definition uh, that I'm giving you for depression uh, for uh, the sake of this message, a debilitating feeling of hopelessness, helplessness, and despair, which results in a person withdrawing from responsibilities and relationships. Now, this definition is important. And underline or circle the word withdrawing, withdrawing. Notice, and this is important for you to understand in the context of the message, I am not defining depression as merely feeling hopeless or feeling helpless. But when you respond to those feelings by withdrawing from your responsibilities in life, when you withdraw from the most important relationships in your life and you isolate yourself. We made three observations about depression, just very general observations, just to sort of lay a foundation uh, for the message. The first observation is face reality. As believers, we have to face reality. Depression, darkness, Despair and disappointment are, and here's a key word, legitimate spiritual experiences. Just as there will be mountaintop experiences, there will be seasons in the valley of depression, and this is inescapable living on this fallen planet. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, notice, you have been distressed. I mentioned last week that Greek word literally means to be crushed under the heavy weight of sorrow. And what is it that crushes us? Various trials, he says. Life, life is hard. And he says there are times in life it becomes so hard that you're just crushed under that weight and you fall into depression. Even the Apostle Paul struggled Uh, with this issue. Notice two passages out of 2 Corinthians. He says, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired. We despaired even of life. Our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed. He's acknowledging I was depressed. Comforted us. So, we need to face reality. And then in facing reality, the second observation, we need to be real. We need to be real. We need to be honest. We need to be transparent. If there is one thing we learn from the great Bible characters, even Jesus, it is okay to express your raw emotions to God. And we looked at several of those passages last week. And we saw that God will never gasp in surprise and say, Oh, I would never have believed that of you. The suffering can only be endured when the pain is articulated. 
which is the first step to healing. And we saw a couple of examples there in the scriptures. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But I am very discouraged. And I was, notice, pouring my heart to the Lord. Don't think I am a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. And then Lamentations 2, verse 19, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Many of our emotions are poisonous, and we have to get that poison out. And one of the ways we begin to get it out is by getting honest, being real, being transparent with God and with others, and articulating the pain. And then the third Just very basic observation. No matter what, just keep relying on God. Keep relying on God. Another lesson we learn from the great Bible characters is that in times of depression, there is no one else to turn to for answers except God. Because God is the final reference point for all of life. I love Isaiah chapter 50 verse 10. If you are walking in darkness... Without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. And then look at this wonderful promise that we uh, saw last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation even here in this matter of depression, has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you, uh, that you will uh, provide you to escape also that you will be able to endure it. So notice, um, healing may not be the absence of the pain, the absence of the depression, but the ability to endure it. And then we began to look at Elijah in 1 Kings 19 as a biblical case study of depression. I simply don't have time this morning to rehearse as I did last week uh, the, the historical narrative. But let me just briefly give you the, uh, the backdrop. Uh, you remember in 1 Kings 18 was his great contest with uh, King Ahab and the uh, Baal prophets on Mount uh, Carmel. And uh, you remember how they uh, both built their sacrifices, and whatever God would send fire down from heaven, that that would be the true God. And he confronted the uh, people of Israel. Why are you halting between two opinions? You know, if God is God, if Jehovah's God, well, then worship Him. If it's Baal, you worship Him. But just stop halting. Stop riding the fence. Stop just limping along uh, spiritually. And you remember the Baal prophets went through all sorts of contortions trying to get the fire to fall. Nothing happened. And no Elijah came up uh, after they had had their try. He had his sacrifice completely doused with with water. As he prayed, God brought the fire down, consumed the sacrifice. The people said, oh, Jehovah, he's the true God. Elijah commands them then to slaughter the Baal uh, prophets. And uh, apparently... Uh, Elijah believes he's won the day. He's won the nation. You know, the, the, the war is over. Uh, finally, victory has come. And then he's totally caught off by surprise when he gets the message from Ahab's wife, Jezebel, that by this time tomorrow, as uh, my prophets are dead, you're dead. 
uh, and I got, I, got a, I got a price on your head, and you won't be living much longer. And then he suddenly just begins to run. And he falls into this deep pit of depression, this deep pit of darkness. And we saw that Elijah's experience, moving back to your notes now, all the classic symptoms of depression. First, fear and flight. Fear and flight. Verse 3 says, And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And then in verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Remember we said Mount Carmel and Jezreel, where he was, was in the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, when he became frightened, he ran south. And he got all the way into the southern kingdom of Judah. He went as far south as you can go to the, in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, he went about as far as civilization, civilization existed at that time. Uh, would have been about a hundred mile journey that he took. Running uh, from Jezebel in fear and in depression. And then it says he left his uh, servant at Beersheba. And then he willed into the wilderness. Which really was a death wish. Because the wilderness south of Beersheba no one can survive in. And so he just, he just goes in there. And, and so you see this fear and flight. And that's, that's common with depression. This, 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 this sense of panic. This sense of anxiety that causes you to flee again, to withdraw, to isolate yourself. And then the second uh, classic symptom is failure complex. He said, I am no better than my fathers. And a person that's depressed, they believe that they're a mistake. That God made a mistake in creating them. And they just see their life as this one uh, terrible uh, mess. Nothing's good come out of it. And they're just totally down on themselves. They see themselves as losers. And then third, uh, futility to the point of desiring death. Uh, verse 4, he says, I came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough now. O Lord, take my life. And folks, that's just futility. He's he just basically saying what? I can't take it no more. I've had enough. You know, I'm finished with life. There's no point going on. I can't take this any longer. So, Lord, just take my life. And then the fourth uh, uh, symptom, extreme fatigue. Uh, verse 5 says, and he lay down and slept under the juniper tree. And the people that are depressed not only know uh, physical exhaustion, but uh, uh, just, they've expended everything emotionally as well. Now, we raised the question last week, and this is still review. How did Elijah go from the mountaintop of victory on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 to the valley of defeat and depression in 1 Kings 19? And several very important things we can surmise from this passage that I think are important for us to understand as well. First, he let down, he let his guard down. He let his guard down in the aftermath of a great victory. He let his guard down in the aftermath of a great victory. We talked about this last week. Elijah made the mistake to think because he had won the great victory at Mount Carmel, the war was won. But to win a battle, no matter how great, does not necessarily mean that the war is over. And listen, beloved, the war we are in will not be won into the battle of Armageddon. When Jesus returns, and until then, we have a ruthless and a determined adversary in the devil 
who does his greatest damage when he counterattacks God's people. And you say, why is that so? Because after a success or after a uh, time of happiness, our tendency is to let down our spiritual guard, to be lax in communications with God, and we become easy targets. And we also need to understand, as we saw last week, from God's point of view, He does not want us to stop and live the rest of our lives on the mountaintop of a current victory. We are on a journey with God, and He intends to take us, what, from mountaintop to mountaintop, and between each mountain is what? A valley. And you're never going to learn the next lesson God has for you until you descend into that valley. And it's often that descent that trips us up. The second um, thing that contributed to him falling into depression, and this is a key. You need to mark this one a couple of times, the importance of this point. He did not think realistically or clearly about his situation. He did not think realistically or clearly about his situation. Now, just think about that. In the same day, in the same day, Elijah goes from a courageous faith, standing alone for God on Mount Carmel, against overwhelming odds, to running in fear from one woman, Jezebel. Faulty thinking is what caused that. Faulty thinking. He left God out of the equation. There is no mention that he ever looked to God, that he ever prayed to God, that he ever sought God's direction. And hear me now, hear me very, very closely. No person, no event, no matter how bad, causes depression. I'll say that again. No person, no event, no matter how bad, causes depression. Now, remember, I'm not defining depression as merely feeling hopeless or helpless. But when what? You respond to those feelings by withdrawing from responsibilities and relationships. Now, let me ask you, are you ever truly helpless if God is with you? I'll ask that one more time. Are you ever truly helpless and hopeless if God is with you? No, of course not. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecutions, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, beloved, the battle with depression is won or lost in your mind. I am very thankful, very thankful for medication that can aid a person in relieving the pain of depression. And if you're on medication and you need that, you do not need to feel guilty about that. But at the same time, popping a pill will never provide the ultimate answer. You must change your thinking, your outlook, your perspective on life. Those who fall victim to depression listen in their minds 
to negative and discouraging thoughts. And they not only listen to those thoughts, but they let them go unchecked and unchallenged. And if you let this go on long enough, do you know what happens? Your conscience, your internal conscience, which is the only line of defense you have against negative inappropriate or unbiblical thoughts. It becomes desensitized. And when that happens, you no longer have a barrier of defense against negative thoughts. Those negative thoughts will begin to freely then just pour into your mind. And then those negative thoughts are going to flood over right into your heart, which receives those thoughts as being true about you and your situation. This results in depressed feelings and a full retreat from life, withdrawing from responsibilities and relationships. So one of the keys in overcoming depression is to stop listening to yourself and to start talking to yourself. As I mentioned last Sunday, in many, many, many of the Psalms, the writer is actually preaching God's truth to himself in order to correct erroneous or faulty thinking that he's struggling with. A good example is Psalm 42 that we looked at just a moment ago. The psalmist checks his feelings of despair by giving himself a good talking to. He says he's struggling. There's all sorts of negative, discouraging thoughts beginning to attack him. But how does he respond? He doesn't listen. He talks back to him. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. The third thing that contributed to Elijah's fall into depression was he overestimated his strength. He overestimated his strength. We mentioned last Sunday, no person can continually go full throttle without becoming physically exhausted and emotionally drained. You have to idle at times to renew your strength. And if you do not find the proper balance between work and relaxation, like Elijah, it's inevitable that you're going to become burned out and depressed. The fourth thing that contributed to his depression, he isolated himself from others. He totally isolated himself from others. The book of Proverbs says, listen to this, He who separates himself, he quarrels against all sound wisdom. And that's true. The worst thing you can do when you're struggling is to isolate yourself. That's why God created the family of God, the body of Christ. You know, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I can almost give you an ironclad guarantee that whatever you're going through, somebody else in this church family has already gone through that. And they've known, they've known God's comfort. They've known God's grace. They know how to come along your side. They know how to put their arm around you. They know how to share with you from God's grace that brought them through that can aid you. We desperately need one another. And God never intended any believer to lead a, a life as a lone ranger. And the worst mistake that Elijah made is when he separated himself from even his servant. And this worst thing that we can do as well. And then the last fifth thing that he did to contribute to his depression is he submitted to self-pity. He submitted to self-pity. Elijah sits under a juniper tree and he throws a pity party. And he even invites God to the party. 
Oh God, I've had enough. I'm a failure. Come and take my life. Now, before we move on, let me emphasize one more time how quickly Elijah fell into depression. It's, it's just stunning. Uh, and these two experiences, Elijah on Mount Carmel and Elijah under the juniper tree, they're set, what, side by side in the Scripture. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah is on the height of success. In chapter 19, he's in the depths of despair. In chapter 18, he's on the mountaintop of victory. In chapter 19, in the valley of defeat. In chapter 18, he's elated. In chapter 19, he's, what, deflated. The point being, we are all capable of the roller coaster of emotions like that, aren't we? We're all capable, and we all struggle with that, every one of us. And then there are some times when we're on that roller coaster of emotions that the roller coaster goes down and it doesn't come back up. And it just plunges you into that deep, dark pit of depression where we withdraw from responsibilities and relationships. It's a total retreat from life. This happened to Elijah, a great, great man of God, a great man of God, and it happens to us. Now, what did God do to heal Elijah's depression? Moving on in your notes. What did God do to heal Elijah's depression? Because we can learn much from what God did in terms of uh, us getting uh, healing here. Now, before we answer that question, by looking at the next three points in your notes, let me just simply point out a most encouraging truth that you need to, to be thinking about and realizing as we go through all three of these uh, points. And it's simply this. God's unfailing love for his servant. Elijah may have given up on himself, but God didn't give up on Elijah. And don't miss that simple, beautiful, powerful truth. When you and I fall into the pit of depression and despair, hear me now, there are two powers at work, God and the devil. The devil will come with condemnation to reinforce your sense of failure, to reinforce the power of the, and darkness of the despair that you're in. And the devil's one goal, and please don't miss this, his one goal, his one objective is to bring you to the place where you lose confidence in God's grace for you as sinner. Where you get to the place where you think, I've finally crossed the point of no return. I've done it now. God has abandoned me, and I am a lost cause. And a good example of this is not just Elijah right here, but in the New Testament, Peter, after his three denials of Christ. You know the story, how he just plunges into despair in light of his failure. And he thought he had crossed the point of no return, that he had lost his opportunity to walk with God and to serve God. And the Scripture tells us, he said, I'm just going back fishing. I'm just going back to my old life because I've already thrown it all away. And he's just, he's just immersed and just drowning in regret and in despair. So him and some of the other disciples, they're on the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're fishing. They've fished all night. They haven't called anything. 
And then there's this lone figure on the shore, barely seen, and he cries out to them, hey, cast the net on the other side. And you remember they did. And you remember what happened? They catch a huge drought of fish. They suddenly realize, this is Jesus. Tells Peter just threw his garment off. He didn't wait till the boat got back. He swam, knowing that was Jesus. And then Jesus had a fire prepared, a charcoal fire. And he fed them. And you remember he asked Peter three times what? Peter, do you what? Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? And then he said what? Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Now, what was Jesus doing in that? Do you know that drought of fish that they caught? You know what Jesus was doing? Do you remember the occasion when Jesus called Peter to follow him? That was the miracle. Remember he used Peter's boat as a pulpit? He went out, remember, and they had fished all night, and they had caught nothing. And Peter even questioned the Lord, but he says, at thy bidding, I'll cast the net down. And he did, and he fell on the boat, and he said, oh, depart from me, for I'm a sinful, wicked man. And Peter said, oh, don't fear, Peter. From now on, you'll be a fisher of men. Follow me. And what Jesus was doing was, Peter, nothing's changed. Listen to this. He said, Peter, you didn't do anything to win my love. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to lose my love. And I still have a plan for your life. I still have work for you to do. I have a job for you to complete. And this was God's message to Elijah. So as we go through these next three points, you'll notice there's no scolding of Elijah by God. There's no anger or rebuke but only the reassurance of God's love and that God still had a work for Elijah to do. And the same is true with you and me today. You did nothing to win God's love if you're His child and there's nothing you can do to lose His love and God still has a work for you to do. You just need to face reality, be real, keep relying on God. Now, Look in your notes to discover the first thing God did to heal Elijah's depression. Look how practical this is. God ministered to Elijah's physical needs by providing him proper nutrition and adequate rest. Look at uh, 1 Kings 19, verses uh, 5 through 8. It says, He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. God sent an angel, a messenger, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water so that he ate and drank and lay down again and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said arise eat because the journey is too great for you so he rose and ate and drank and went into the strength in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb uh, the mountain uh, of God look at that next statement in your notes sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do is eat a good meal Get a good night's sleep and get away for a few days of relaxation. And that's true, folks. I think it was Dr. Schaefer, great man of God, who made a very similar statement. He said, you know, sometimes the most spiritual thing for you to do would not be to stay up another hour to pray, but to get to bed a little early and get a good night's sleep. 
And so, there, again, we're back to this balance uh, between work and relaxation because there is a close relationship between our physical and emotional state. Keeping healthy in general, getting enough of the right kind of food, enough sleep and sufficient exercise, it's, it's not a guarantee against depression, but it may help pre- prevent it, and it certainly uh, will put you in a better state to deal with it when you battle it. Um, And even Jesus recognized this. You know, he said to his disciples, come apart for a little while and rest. That's what he commanded, come apart and rest. So the fact is, we are either going to come apart and rest, or we're going to fly to pieces, one or the other. So the choice is yours. Look at the second thing God did. God ministered to Elijah's emotional needs. Not just his physical needs, but his emotional needs by allowing him to freely vent his frustrations. And, and God did not make Elijah feel guilty about his feelings. Uh, he sends him to uh, Mount Horeb, which is actually Mount uh, Sinai. And, uh, and, and notice uh, how God gives him the opportunity to vent his frustrations. Look at verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Uh, For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life uh, to take it. And then in verse 14, God asks him that again, and he gives the identical answer verbatim, word for word, word for good. In other words, The simple point I want you to see is that God allows Elijah to talk about his frustrations, and God listened in a non-judgmental way. As Elijah disputed out anger, bitterness, and self-pity. And what was at the root, what was at the root of all of his poisonous emotions? Look at that last sentence under point number two. At the heart of Elijah's depression was disappointment with God caused by unmet expectations. And folks, this is a key for us to be willing to acknowledge this, that behind depression is disappointment with God caused by unmet expectations. Uh, God, at times, does not meet our expectations. He does not come through at some point in our lives as we would have thought God would have come through or as He should have come through. We don't get the outcome that we desired. And so we don't understand, how can a loving, how can an all-powerful God, how could He have let this happen? Uh, And that was Elijah's struggle. And it's our struggle today. And this leads us right to the third point, how God ministered to Elijah's spiritual needs by taking him to church. (laughs) By taking him to church. Now, Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. And, of course, Mount Sinai at this point was a central place of uh, worship uh, for the children of Israel. This is where he gave gave them the Ten Commandments, where he entered a covenant with them, where Moses had his great experience as God uh, passed by in in the presence uh, of the Lord. So he, he takes him back. Uh, to, his, to his roots, to the root of faith and biblical truth and God's covenant love. 
Because at the root of depression, look there, that third point. At the root of depression is a what? Distorted view of God and of ourselves. Worship, God's Word, and prayer are powerful antidepressants to correct our outlook on life and renew our joy. Now, let's read the passage. Uh, we'll, we'll read just verses 11 through 18. We'll stop at 18, and then we'll make those final observations as we conclude. So he's at Mount Sinai. So God said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. He'd been in a cave. He says, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. Identical statement that was made in the Scripture when he passed by Moses on this same mount. A matter of fact, in the Hebrew text, it talks about the cave. There, uh, there is the possibility that God put him in the identical same place, that cleft of the rock, uh, where he had put Moses uh, when he passed uh, by. And he says, Behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains. Like, it was like a tornado, a cyclone. Stones are breaking up. Boulders breaking up. Uh, but the Lord was uh, not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. Uh, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in a fire. And after the fire... A sound of a gentle blowing or a small, still voice. That small, still voice of God. And it came about when Elijah heard it. When he heard what? That small, still voice of God. He wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Again, he gives the same retort that he had given before about how zealous he had been. And he alone was left. And they're seeking his life to take it away. Verse 15, and the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimsi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Zaphat of Abel-Mehomlah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And of course it says he departed uh, to uh, obey what God had instructed him to do. Now, look at that first point there. God demonstrated to Elijah that the still small voice of God Speaking to the human heart is more powerful than the miraculous displays of God's glory. And this is very significant. It's very significant to you and I. God demonstrated to Elijah that the small, still voice of God speaking to the human heart is more powerful than miraculous displays of God's power. He brought this powerful wind. He brings the earthquake. He brings the fire. Uh, two of those elements that he had seen on Mount Carmel as well God had displayed. But God was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in uh, the fire. Uh, he was in that what? That small, still voice of God. You see, I, I think the problem Elijah had, and we just stated it, and it's the problem you and I, he was looking for a particular outcome from God and he didn't get it. You know, he was looking for something spectacular. He was looking for some sign, great wonder, some miracle, as if this would be his cure-all. But folks, it's not. 
Do you know in the Bible, I don't know if you've ever realized this, in the Bible, there are three significant periods in biblical history where you see plentiful miracles. You know what the three periods were? First one was Moses. Second one was the ministries of Elijah and Elijah. And the third one was the ministry of Christ. Now, you know what is absolutely astounding about all three of those biblical times? Greatest time of unbelief. I mean, the children of Israel saw all those wonderful miracles as God brought them out of uh, Egypt. What good did it do them? They didn't believe. They got eaten up with anxiety and fear and unbelief, and they never got to enter the promised land. Elijah, Elijah, you see, it is bountiful miracles, like we saw on Mount Carmel. But the nation never turns back to God. And then in Jesus, what do they do in Jesus? They put him on a cross and they kill him. So you and I need to understand, such an important lesson in life. We tend to look for an outcome as if this is going to be our answer. If God would just do this, or you know, if he would just do this, you know, that, would, that would be the answer for me. No, no. The answer is to know God intimately. The answer is God's word. The answer is to hear that still, small voice. You know, I mentioned this when I preached the message on grief a couple of weeks ago. But if you're struggling with the depression, just like I asked those who are struggling with grief to do this, let me give you a prescription. Begin reading five psalms a day. Remember how I told you to do that? Today is November the what? 15th. So you read Psalm 15. And then you read every 30th, 30 Psalms. In other words, you, today you'd read Psalm 15, Psalm 45, 75, 105, 135. And in that method, you can go through all 150 Psalms in a single month. And just read them. And just before you read, just say, God, let me hear that small, still voice. Speak to me through your word. Bring me comfort. Bring me healing. Draw me deeper into a relationship with you. Because that's where the ultimate answer is. It's not you getting the outcome. See, what happens, we so focus on the outcome that when it doesn't come, we get mad at God. And that puts a wedge between me and God. And He's the only source of strength that I have. And if I cut myself off from Him... I'm going to remain in despair and darkness. And so I have to get to that place where I stop looking for outcomes and I realize God is enough. God is enough. Whether I get the outcome or I don't, as we sang earlier, the joy of the Lord is my what? Strength. God. And so whether it's in victory or defeat or whatever the situation in life, God is there for me, and His grace is adequate for me. Look at the second simple point there, and you notice God corrected Elijah's false sense of importance. He corrected his false sense of importance, as if God's work was dependent on Elijah. In fact, God had already chosen Elijah's successor, <laughs> Elisha. I mean, when you see Elijah's response, you realize he's a little stuck on himself. I mean, there's some arrogance behind this. 
Like, you know, it, it all depends on him. But, folks, let's be honest. If God's work solely depends on you and me, God is in serious trouble. And aren't you thankful it doesn't depend solely on you and I? Praise God. He wants to use us. There's a union. He's the vine. We're the branch. And it's in that union his work gets produced. But praise God that he's the key. And he's telling Elijah, hey, Elisha, hey, this all doesn't fall on you. This all doesn't depend on you. I've already picked out your uh, successor, Elijah. Uh, and then look at the next thing. God, and I love this. I love this about God at this point. God affirmed the impact of Elijah's ministry. But Elijah thought he was a failure because the nation had not turned. Uh, because the success of Carmel was so short-lived, Elijah viewed his ministry a failure. But God pointed out 7,000 people scattered throughout the nation who remained true to God, not due to Elijah's miracles, but the quiet influence of his godly example. Elijah had made a difference. It was in a quiet way, and God affirms that here. And it's going to be the same with you and I. As we get to that place, stop looking for outcomes. Just look to God. Focus on that relationship, building that intimacy with Him, regardless of the outcome. And as His life becomes formed in us and we grow in His grace and knowledge, He will allow us to provide an example and have an influence that we could never imagine and that we'll never see, never even understand or know about until we get to heaven. And then look at the next thing. God gave Elijah something to do. God basically tells Elijah, get back to work. I've got a job for you to do. In other words, make yourself useful. You know, one of the greatest psychiatrists in our nation was asked the question, if you knew that somebody was just about to have a nervous breakdown, what would you tell them to do? One of the greatest psychiatrists in the United States of America. If you knew someone was about to have a nervous breakdown, what would be the best advice you would know to give them? He said, I would tell them to go to their door, turn the doorknob, go outside, go across the other side of the tracks and help somebody. That's what he told them. Get involved. Make yourself useful. And then look at the last thing that God did. He gave Elijah a friend. He gave him a friend. He gave him Elisha. And folks, we all need a friend. We all need a godly friend. Somebody we can really confide confide in. That we can spew out all those poisonous emotions and they'll listen in a non-judgmental way. And they'll be there to help us pick up the pieces. They'll be there to help us turn to God. They'll be there to give us some objectivity when we've lost objectivity. We all need that friend. So I trust this case study from Elijah on depression has been helpful uh, to us. And I do believe if you'll take these truths, if you'll apply them to your life, uh, that he can make a difference. As we move into our time of invitation, I'll be standing at the front uh, to greet anyone that would like to unite with our church, uh, come on public profession of faith, or you have another, another need. Uh, again, as I so often share with you, this is, in my opinion, the most important time in the service. Don't hide behind the song. The, the goal of, this, of these next two minutes is for you to respond to what you've heard. 
What, what has God said to your heart? Where have you heard that small, still voice? Where do you need to step out in faith and obedience and apply, appropriate, obey what you've heard today? Again, listening to a message never changes the first person. It's acting on that message, acting on God's truth. So that's important of this time. It's not just singing a song, giving people an opportunity to come down the aisle. You should be focusing on only one person, that's you. And what has God said to you? What should your response be? Amen? Amen. And if you don't know Christ, can I be very honest? You should be very depressed. Because you do not have a bright future. You have a future that's going to be one being separated from God in eternity in hell. But God loved you so much that He sent His Son into this world to die for your sins. And He rose again to offer you life. To be your Savior and Lord. To take up residence in your heart as you would invite Him in to forgive you of your sins and take control of your life. And I plead with you to do that today. And to know the joy of the Lord as your what? Strength. Please stand as the invitation is extended.